0: The projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, the podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode 20, Writ Large Screen, Edgar Rice Burroughs, in which I'm joined by a couple of previous guests to explore movie adaptations of works by the famous author that didn't necessarily feature Lord Greystoke. So, grab yourself a convenient vine, or maybe a cosmic beam, and let's go.
1: three o'clock in the afternoon that it began, the afternoon of June 3rd, 1916.
0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is going to be the first of what you might call a sub-series of podcast episodes titled Writ Large Screen, in which I'll be discussing movie adaptations of works by famous authors. The first of these is the creator of Tarzan, Edgar Rice Burroughs. And to join me in exploring such films are a couple of noteworthy prior guests, Edgar Rice Burroughs expert and author of Tarzan on film, Scott Tracy Griffin, along with pulp historian and author Will Murray. Gentlemen. Okay, now I feel like I should launch into singing. A secretary is not a toy, but never mind that. Anyway, welcome back to Movie Nights and Matinees.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Likewise. Now, before we delve into our topic as such, let's do some catching up. Tracy, when we last spoke, you were nearing a special Edgar Rice Burroughs event in Palm Springs. How did that go?
3: Uh, It came off marvelously. We raised money to put a star down in the Palm Springs Walk of the Stars. It's a similar scenario to the Hollywood Walk of Stars. They're famous. They have their own in Palm Springs. As Burroughs fans may know, he lived there for almost a year with his wife, Florence. And what I learned through researching with Palm Springs is they went back and forth for the next four years. They lived there in 1935, 36, and then they continued to go out to Palm Springs regularly to vacation and see their friends up until they moved to Hawaii in 1940. You know, Linda Burroughs, a Grace Burroughs granddaughter-in-law, she signed off on it as a family member, and we put the application in and Burroughs received it. I believe he's probably the only pulp author that's ever been you know, recognized like this. I know Ray Bradbury has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Stars. Ray was a a little bit later. I think he had a story or two in the pulps. So yeah, the ceremony was marvelous. Palm Springs loved us. They loved the ceremony. We had a pretty big crowd there, probably fifty or sixty people of our group, and then you know all the tourists were stopping by to watch. So the folks at Palm Springs said it was one of them told us that it was the best ceremony they'd had in twenty years of their involvement with the project. So yeah, it just couldn't have gone better. And we had a Burroughs convention in. Conjunction with that, the Edgar Rice Burroughs Chain of Friendship or ECOF Convention, and that went well. We had Tommy Cook as our special guest. We had Lee Chase, who's Edgar Rice Burroughs' stepson. His mother was Burroughs' second wife. And Tommy Cook, I believe, just turned ninety-three, and Lee Chase is ninety-four. Hmm. So it was great to get these two nonagenarians there talking and and reminiscing, and uh, it was just a marvelous time.
0: Good. That sounds like a lot of fun. Now, Will, when you joined me for episode six. Although our topic was The Shadow, you were on the verge of publishing a new novel of interest to Edgar Rice Burroughs fans, which was in fact a sequel to a prior one in which Tarzan and John Carter joined forces. So how has Return to Mars been received?
2: Very, very well. It's getting good reviews on Amazon, and the hardcover is selling briskly in large part because there's a bonus story. We got permission from the not only the borough's estate, but the literary people who are in charge of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's properties. We got permission to both to have a short story, our novelette, really, in which Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes meet. And the story takes place in that window where uh, Lord Greystoke, John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, is living in London. And at that time, Sherlock Holmes was retired, but he reaches out to uh, Holmes in retirement for help with a special project. Hmm. And uh, so we have the first authorized Tarzan meets Sherlock Holmes story.
0: Ah, huh. Well, that sounds really cool. Tapping into a, an entirely new literary audience with that one, it sounds like. Now, as I alluded to earlier, although I think it's fair to say that most people associate the name Edgar Rice Burroughs with Tarzan, today's discussion isn't going to be especially Tarzan centric, mainly because Tracy and I covered that pretty thoroughly in episode two. So if you listeners, if you haven't listened to that one, then please do. Nevertheless, it's probably only fair to do a bit of an introductory recap of how the author's first book came to be published, since it will be prominently featured in our conversation later. So, Tracy, if you could take a couple of minutes and refresh our collective memory there, that will get us out of the gate.
3: Okay. Well, Edgar Rice Burroughs grew up the son of an upper middle class family, so he had money and he traveled around the country, never really could decide on what he wanted to do, tried a lot of professions and was flipping through the port magazines one day. And saw the stories and said, well, I could do this as well as these stories. You know, here was this frustrated creative who had tried door-to-door sales and every other soulless profession you can imagine. So he wrote a story and he sent it off and it was purchased that became A Princess of Mars. The magazine did not buy his second story, The Medieval Adventure An Outlaw of Torn. He had to sell that to another magazine down the road. His third novel was Tarzan of the Apes. And he really, you know, hit it out of the park with that one. It is just probably, I think, his best novel because I think he he sort of hit his creative peak. and, And Tarzan was such a success that writing became his profession. You know, at that point, it became a job and his moneymaker. He was no longer doing it to please himself and show what he could do. And, you know, I love all his work, but I think Tarzan of the Apes really was a high point. The editor read it in one sitting. All the other editors read it and loved it. They printed it in one issue. They didn't serialize it. Newspapers picked it up and started serializing it. And then the book came out in 1914. And as soon as he got the book, he started pitching it to film people. So we can get into that in a little bit. But that's yeah. basically the story. Tarzan of the Apes really won him fame. And he did a lot of other things, 11 books in that Mars of Barzum series and other you know, sort of proto-science fiction and fantasy books and about 80 novels and all. So he was a very prolific author and one of the best-selling authors of the 20th century.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned in passing in our prior discussion that you discovered him at the age of nine, but didn't really get into any details on that. What was the first book that he read that kind of got you hooked on him?
3: Well, I think all of us sort of know who Tarzan is through that sort of cultural osmosis. And my brother had the lunchbox. So I would ask my parents, they had a pretty large library, you know, do we have any Tarzan books? And I didn't know what a Tarzan book was, but they didn't really cater to that sort of fiction. So I walked into a bookstore. We had a small, you know, small town bookstore, population of about twelve thousand. And I walked in, and they had all the Neil Adams paperbacks on a rack. And I must have stood there for over an hour, reading every one, the insides and the blurbs, and and I started with Tarzan of the Apes because I, you know, the others, the covers were just fascinating. The Leopard Man, Tarzan and the Leopard Man, Tarzan of the, and the Lion Adam, Man. sure. Yes, yes. But I, I wanted to start the journey with the original, so I started with Tarzan of the Apes.
0: Did you exhaust the Tarzan series before you moved I into those other I, characters?
3: I did. I did them one at a time. I did the Tarzan series. Then I did the Mars series. The bookstore didn't have the Ace books. So I found those at a mall in another town. And so I sort of went in the order of popularity. Yes.
0: Hmm. Okay. Will, how about you? How did you discover Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author?
2: It was uh, late 1968. And I was starting to transition from reading Marvel comics to paperback novels. So I was sampling different writers, different books. And I walked into this little hole in the wall where they sold books without a cover for a dime, which enabled me to sample more for less money and grace, so to speak, until I found authors I really liked. And there was a coverless copy of The Gods of Mars. It looked interesting. I bought it, I read it, and I was immediately captivated and began looking for the rest of the Mars series and then the other series. And because I'd grown up on Tarzan and I liked Tarzan, but the Tarzan and the films, Tended to be, you know, not a character I would necessarily want to read in a novel. I didn't get around to buying the Tarzians until 1971, which is two or three years later. And then, of course, I read them. And so I was a little later to Tarzan than I was to the bulk of Burroughs' work.
0: Okay. Something just uh, occurred to me that I probably should ask, and it, it's it doesn't have a strong tie-in in terms of the movie aspect, but uh, I think of Robert E. Howard. And people generally know him by virtue of Conan the Barbarian, maybe Red Sonja, and that's about it. Uh, It it just seems like Burroughs was uniquely broad in his scope, and uh, I guess you might say imagination. Now, I say that not having read any Robert E. Howard, but just based on the familiarity that I have of exposure through comic books and just kind of the the fandom conversations and things like that. Do you have any thoughts uh, on? comparing the two
2: i would say that i would not slight robert e howard because he did conan but he also did uh solomon kane which was a pure adventurer he did westerns and he did humorous westerns he did al murek which was basically john carter of mars through his own sensibilities and he did poetry Burroughs was not a poet particularly although i think he wrote a few in his life I would say that Burroughs was, was more of a fantasy adventure writer, and Robert E. Howard tended to be more adventure with a mixture of fantasy in it. A lot of people you know, that I know and know of and heard of got into Burroughs through the science fiction window, which is either the Mars or the Venus books or something like that. So not everybody gets into it through Tarzan, because I think the movies have made Tarzan famous, but have devalued him as a literary property, at least in my generation. You wouldn't necessarily want to read a novel that reads like a Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movie, even though you might like the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies. It's like, I don't want to read about a character who says me and points to his chest and has a pet chimp and all that stuff. But that's my opinion. I I would put them uh, on the same pedestal. They're both tremendously influential, and they are, at their core, adventure writers.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. All right. So Princess of Mars gets published, and then uh, Tarzan of the Apes. And then the movies come calling. But Tarzan was not the first one to make it onto film. Now, we mentioned the film The Lad and the Lion, 1917, in the last discussion. Do you want to talk about that one a little bit?
3: Yeah, well, it's it was almost like Burroughs was just waiting to get that hardback book in his hand after he saw how popular it was. He tried publishers all over the country, and despite its popularity, they wouldn't publish it until A.C. McClurg there in Chicago took it on. And as soon as he got that book, he sent it out to a film agent named Cora Wilkening in New York City. And she, in turn, sent it to William Selig there in in Chicago. And Selig had a pretty big operation. He's all but forgotten today. But he was an early pioneer in in silent films. So Burroughs went over and met with him in December 1914. The book came out in June. So by December, he took a meeting with Selig. And they talked about doing a Tarzan movie, but Selig wanted to use documentary footage of actual apes. And they couldn't get that. So talk sort of fell off. And then Burroughs suggested The Land of the Lion, which is basically the Tarzan story with lions. A young man is raised by lions up in the uh, Sahara Desert, and he um, falls in with a tribe of Bedouins and, and romances the Bedouin daughter and everything. So Selig found that one much more filmable because lions you know, are easily trainable. They sleep about 20 hours a day. You keep them fed, and they'll hit their cues for a little while before they get tired and want to go back to bed. So they filmed that one. Burroughs was out here wintering in Los Angeles when they filmed it in 1916, 1917, sort of spring of 1917, out at the Selig Zoo. And so he watched some of the filming. It was really sort of dumped on the market. Selig had already peaked and was sort of declining when that film was released. Selig had done a lot of jungle pictures in 1914, 1516 it was just sort of dumped on the market there wasn't a lot of poopla about it magazine was published at the same time so it's pretty much forgotten today because of that
0: and that's one of and we again talked about this earlier a lot of people they think or at least just kind of have the general impression if they haven't given it much thought that the Tarzan movie started with Johnny Weissmuller but in fact there were a whole bunch of silent Tarzan films and three of those are lost along with a couple of non Tarzan Edgar Rice Burroughs adaptations, The Lad and the Lion being the first one. Now, the next one strikes me a little odd that it would be lost since we still have Tarzan of the Apes, the with Elmo Lincoln, 1918, made the big splash. But then he did a sequel, The Romance of Tarzan, also 1918. How did that one get lost?
3: That's a good question. Well, Tarzan comes to civilization. It was a quickie. They rushed it into production. Jane leaves Africa thinking Tarzan's dead. And he follows her, much like the end of the novel Tarzan of the Apes. And this time, they, I believe they go to San Francisco. And so they have sort of these Wild West taverns and saloons and stuff where he has to pursue Jane. And they used a lot of stock footage from the first film. Because if you'll notice, a lot of the same actors are in it. I don't know if they filmed any new footage with anyone besides Elmo and Enid Markey, his leaning lady. I suggest that it just didn't go over as well. It was Tarzan and Civilization. It recycled a lot of the footage that was in Tarzan of the Apes, which was a better film. So that would be my guess, is it just was sort of considered a pallid imitation.
0: Hmm. Okay. And then in 1919, we get something that is very unusual. It doesn't involve Tarzan or any of his other famous characters. The Oakdale Affair. What was that one about?
3: Well, The Oakdale Affair was the second sequel to The Mucker. He wrote The Mucker, which is sort of a trilogy. It was The Mucker, The Return of the Mucker, and The Oakdale Affair. And The Oakdale Affair doesn't involve Billy Byrne, the lead character, the first two. It involves his sidekick, Bridge, who's a hobo. And so it was sort of a murder mystery in the hobo jungles. I, I don't know why they picked that one to film, except maybe they thought it was easily filmable. It was shot in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So it was not shot out here in in Hollywood. Uh, Oscar Apfel, who was a well-known director, was the director of it. So that's another one that I don't know why it was lost, other than it probably got lost in the shuffle. And, you know, with a lot of those silent films, they would destroy them to get the silver back so they could recycle the silver.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then the last two of the lost films are Tarzan films. Uh, 1920s, The Revenge of Tarzan. And that starred Gene Poller, I believe his name was.
3: Yes, that was a stage name. Yeah, he was a fireman, but he was also a a tremendous athlete. He was about 6'2 and won all the fireman-policeman games they used to have in New York City. So that's how he caught the producer's attention. Again, that one started out in Fort Lee, although they came to California to film. That one, there are actually surviving reels from a European archive, and they're in deep storage here with the UCLA archives, awaiting restoration. I was not aware of that. Yes, there are some reels, and, and I have prodded them and tried to get them because it's Pollard's only camera appearance, yeah and he worked with live lions it was supposed to be an exciting film so hope remains eternal that we'll see him on the screen one day So you haven't last- been
0: able to to get in there even just to look at them
3: I believe they're probably sealed. I don't know if they, because once you open, you, you know, you can't really stop and start the restoration process is my Mm. understanding. Once you, these things are so fragile, once you open it and sort of commit to restoring it, you've got a six figure project on your hands. So yeah, yeah, they're not letting folks into, to to sample the wares, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully something will change there because I know uh, a lot of people Would love to see that. And then we get to the first of two serials starring Frank Merrill as Tarzan, Tarzan the Mighty, which is Lost, and then Tarzan the Tiger, which Mm -hmm. is not. And I had some discussion with Ed Hulse when we talked about cliffhanger serials. And although Tarzan the Tiger is, I guess, generally highly regarded, apparently the contemporary reviews suggested that Tarzan the Mighty was actually the better film.
3: Possibly, you know, it was based on Jungle Tales of Tarzan, and they did a lot of bollyhoo for it. They serialized it in the newspapers, so you can get the novella of the film today. We kind of know what it was about. They did a lot of publicity photos and releases. Natalie Kingston was quite beautiful in the role. And it, it was sort of a reverse Tarzan the Tiger was a quickie they rushed out to capitalize on the PR. They didn't do nearly as much publicity in PR for Tiger as they did for Mighty. But again, probably, you know, Universal purged their films, all their silent films, burned them all up, you know, because the nitrate was so unstable. And, of course, Tarzan the Mighty was based uh, loosely on Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. Tarzan the Tiger, you mean? Uh, Yes, I'm sorry, Tarzan the Tiger. Tarzan the Mighty was based on Jungle Tales. It's an interesting fact that all eight silent films were based on the novels. After the silent film, Burroughs got so burned out on the way they were treating his character when he signed it with MGM, he said, you can take the character, but don't touch my novels. Don't use anything out of the books. And so, as Will said earlier, Johnny Weissmuller is a completely different character. That's why Burroughs sold him the character, but he didn't want his novels touched anymore. So it wasn't until Greystoke that we saw, or the Filmation cartoon, that we saw a Tarzan novel on screen again.
2: It's an interesting factoid of Tarzan the Mighty that the man who played Tarzan, Frank Merrill, was the first cinematic Tarzan to swing from a vine something that was not in the original novels.
3: He was a rope climbing champion and an Olympic ring. So who knows if they just did that to sort of take advantage of his strengths, the same way they worked the swimming in. Swimming became such an institution. They had swimming scenes in the Gordon Scott movies and and everything. And it was because they hired an Olympic swimmer and they wanted to capitalize on what he did. Frank Merrill was a champion rope climber.
0: Yeah, well, and he was also one of the beefiest Tarzans. I mean, he and Gordon Scott, I think, topped the list there. So, Will, I mean, you mentioned Tarzan the Mighty. Of the silent films, do you have any particular thoughts on any of those that you like? I have
2: watched any of them. I've watched very few silent films. They require a certain amount of attention. Uh, Honestly, I think they would work better in a theater and not watching it on YouTube or on TV. Where I think their values are better expressed in the large screen, so I, I don't tend to gravitate towards silent films. I've you know I've seen Metropolis and Doctor Caligari and things that have certain currency as transcending the silent film medium, but I haven't really watched any of the, these things. Is uh, that maybe a snippet here and there? But I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of Tarzan in the theaters, although there have been some pretty good movies with Tarzan that I've liked. I've watched a lot of them, but my interest doesn't take me to the silent films particularly.
0: Okay. Well, then we get into the talkies. And it's fair to say that Edgar Rice Burroughs on the big screen is dominated and pretty much defined by Tarzan for the most part. But there are a few exceptions that come along here where some other works of his find their way in. And the first one is interesting. And I didn't really know about this one until recently. And that's 1936, The Lion Man. And that's ostensibly a remake of The Lad and the Lion.
3: Well, I, you know, I've tried to research this. There's very little out there about it at the Margaret Herrick Motion Picture Library. They did very little Bollyhoo. They just, again, sort of dumped it on the market. It was not authorized by Burroughs. I did uh. discover that. I even, I think in my early preps in Tarzan um, Centennial Celebration, included it in the Burroughs films. I think it belongs more with the unauthorized Burroughs films because he did not authorize it. And it remains a question. Was it an idea? Was it based on Lad and the Lion? Was it based on the book? Was it based on the prior film? Or did someone just have the idea of let's have a desert romance with lions and and Bedouins? That's a good question.
0: Well, it's on YouTube. It's an awful print. But in the credits, it does attribute the Lad and the Lion as being the source material. But I have the sense, based on your description of The Lad and the Lion, which I have not read the original story, it appears that it's a very loose if there's a basis for it. I mean, it, just, it doesn't really parallel the Tarzan film in terms of how the child is raised or anything like that. It's more that there's this figure and he kind of... Becomes, he, I guess he, he becomes orphaned and raised under the care of a Bedouin, I believe it is, who instills in him this kind of culture of the lion, you know, learn the ways of the lion. And so he develops this nickname and, and I guess is kind of referred to as the Lion of the desert. Dism- That's the gist of it.
1: Thou art being unkind to thy father. I'm afraid we have offended you, sir. What of it? He's not nearly so powerful since the coming of Leon Din. What knowest thou of this lion man? Hast thou seen this wild man of the hill? Nay, father, but like all of Arabia, I've heard of. Hast thou heard that he and his lions tear the necks of men? Wouldst thou like him to tear thy horse to pieces? He does no harm to any except evil to us. He's made the Lackroup pass safe for caravans. He will someday lead all true believers to safety and happiness.
0: It did seem pretty far away from being anything comparable to you know, a Tarzan story where he's raised by lions. That didn't happen.
3: Well, if you remember the movie, The Life of Pi, that came out a while back, it was about a young boy trapped in a lifeboat with a tiger. And a lot of Burroughs people thought that was a ripoff of The Lad and the Lion, because in the original The Lad and the Lion, the lad is, is about, I guess, 10 or 12 years old, and he's on a ship, a steamer, with a captive lion and the ship goes down, and he and the lion escape. So that's sort of how he joins up with the lions. He and the lion survive this escape, and they bond, and they hunt together, and then they find the Bedouins there in North Africa. So the, the lad was a little older. He was, a again, he was a, a an orphaned European noble, the heir to the true throne. And what's interesting is Burroughs, when he released the novel, he added interstitial chapters. So it goes back and forth if you read the novel. The Balkan romance, it tells what's going on in his kingdom while he's in the desert. And, and that was actually a later edition by Burroughs to sort of flesh it out and make it big enough word count for a novel. Hmm.
0: Okay. Well, then we jump forward to 1941. And once again, there's a serial based on Edgar Rice Burroughs' material. And this is Jungle Girl.
3: Yeah it's it's that's considered one of the best jungle cereals out there and it's enjoyable in its own right has very little to do with edgar's bros they basically licensed the title and they put florence gifford in a little leather mini dress and put dave sharp the very famous stunt man put him in that same little leather mini dress and let him double for her <laughs> yeah it's exciting it's stunt filled and, and it's it's a great cereal but it's an Edgar Rice Bros. project in name only, and it was authorized, but her character bears nothing you know, to the character in the book. In the book, you have this heroic American physician, intrepid guy, goes into the jungles of Cambodia and finds a lost civilization, and, and this lost princess who's a dancing girl for this sort of evil king and rescues her, and it turns out she's a princess. So that was set in Cambodia. It had nothing to do with Florence Gifford, I think, who's the daughter of a missionary who was having all these adventures in Africa. I suppose you wonder why we're here, Doctor.
1: Yes, I, uh, I was coming to that. I am a little curious. It's about your brother, Bradley Meredith. Bradley. What devilment is he up to now? Your brother's a changed man, Doctor. As you know, he received a long term in prison. He's just recently been paroled. I owe my brother nothing, Mr. Latimer. Absolutely nothing. His criminal activities drove me into the
3: jungle forced me to bring my daughter up with a savage tribe. But it stands on its own. It's It's a good, good serial.
2: And it's so divorced from Burroughs that they did a sequel, Perils of Nyaka, and they didn't pay him for it because they didn't use any of his material that was used in the first serial. So they kind of pulled the rug out from underneath him by, you know, essentially recreating a character under his banner and then running away with it. She was also in comic books. I was about
0: a- to ask. I thought, wasn't there a comic yeah. strip or comic, yeah, the com- comic books the, of her?
2: There was a comic book, and it never said it based on Edgar Rice Burroughs in it, as far as I know, because she he never created the name Nyaka. He created elements that were synthesized into the first serial and then carried over into the second.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen that second one. I'll have to try to get my hands on that at some point, just because just I, I like serials. All right. Now, a couple of years later, this is when I saw this in IMDb. I have to ask if this is a legitimate credit, because, I mean, anybody can go in and put information in there. And that is that one of the, the Fleischer cartoons, the Superman cartoons, 1943, called The Underground World.
1: And while on a hunting trip, my father discovered what are now known as the Henderson Caverns. More than 40 years ago, he mysteriously disappeared while exploring them further. Recently I found these maps and charts he left, suggesting that still greater wonders and mysteries lay beyond in this vast underground world.
0: It indicates that it's based or partially based on Burroughs at the Earth's core. Does that sound
2: right at all? No. In one word, no. Okay. I mean the the idea I mean Burroughs was a pioneer and having a giant drill that you could drive into the Earth's core. I think, was original for him, and it's been copied brazenly. You know, when I was a kid, there was a comic book, Cave Carson, and they had a thing called the uh, the Mole Machine, which was a copy of the Iron Mole, which was from at the Earth's core. But underground civilizations became a staple of science fiction. I mean, Doc Savage dealt with at least two of them, and maybe three if you want to fudge it. So I would say whoever did that just... Either doesn't know anything or was just playing a game because that underground world cartoon, which I have seen, is really, it has no correspondence to any of the Pellucidar novels that Burroughs wrote. Hmm. What would you say, uh, Tracy?
3: I'll defer to you. I haven't seen it, so I'll have to check it out. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, on IMDb, anyone can add credits and acknowledgments. Who knows? Maybe someone got their wires crossed there.
2: Well, it was populated by people who have bird men, and that's not specific to Burroughs. So, you know, it just seems to be a generic underground world that, for all I know, could have been taken from amazing stories or astounding stories if they had any specific influence.
0: Then there's a very long lull. I mean, the Tarzan movies continue to be produced for several decades, and TV series even, but Burroughs, at least in any official Adaptation, And as far as I can tell, and again, I'm relying on IMDb for this, but apparently nothing else of his reaches the big screen until 1974. And then there's the beginning of a what becomes a trilogy of films by Amicus, who is arguably best known for a number of horror anthologies. But the first one of those, 1974, is The Land That Time Forgot.
1: This could have been the end. The end of just another tragic episode in War at Sea. But for the few survivors of a torpedoed merchant ship and the crew of a German U-boat lost in the frozen South Atlantic, it was the beginning of an incredible adventure. For this was the day the 20th century met the primeval world face to face. American International presents The Land That Time Forgot. An astounding motion picture based on the book by Edgar Rice Burroughs creator of Tarzan and the most thrilling science fiction stories ever written. Travel through an underwater passage and discover an awesome prehistoric world. Fight for your life against the terrifying creatures of a lost continent. Come face to face with primitive man and learn the secret of evolution, the land that time forgot.
0: How does that one compare with the uh, source novel?
3: You know, it's interesting. I think that probably one of the most authentic adaptations of a novel is The Son of Tarzan, which is a 1920
0: silent. Oh, and I finally um, saw that. I, I told you last time around that I, I was trying to watch it, but the quality of the, the DVD that I had was so poor, it was just really tough to watch. But it turned out Grapevine Video had a version of it that was, it might've even been the, the same original source print, but they didn't try to cram it all onto one disc. So I think the quality was better there. They had tinting. It looked like it was correct projection speed, I think. But anyway, it was it was much improved. So I finally got through it. So yay.
3: Well, good, but it does drag. And I think that's both the strength and the weakness of The Land That Time Forgot. It's very close to the novel, but they spent half of the movie in the submarine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's very claustrophobic in the back and the forth and the exposition. And you just happen to have two biologists on this submarine, two su- a civilian biologist and the captain of the submarine is also a biologist. And he has his microscopes and his equipment with him and his biology textbooks. And to me, that's sort of a strength and a weakness is we just don't get enough dinosaur adventure. You know, and I enjoy the film. I, I just wish more had been in Caprona.
2: I have the opposite feeling. I thought the submarine stuff was interesting. And uh, the characterizations, the interplays, and the swapping back and forth, the control in the submarine, and finally, when they get to Caprona, the truce they create was reasonably plausible, I mean, for a Hollywood film. My eyes started to glaze over when they got to Caprona because they kept encountering puppet dinosaurs. And I've been on a lot of movie sets covering films for Starlog and Fangoria and magazines like that. And I know a lot about practical effects versus special effects. And I know special effects in those days were weak. But they kept shooting at these dinosaurs with these big, white, long teeth. And I'm thinking, you know, it would have taken and the teeth were not harmed. Dinosaurs would drop over dead, but you wouldn't see much in the way of wounds, at least not on a small screen. I don't know how it looked in the big picture, but I would said, you know, if I were on that movie set, I would tie some wire to a few of those teeth and yank them off during the shootings to at least give the semblance of bullets striking and the, and the dinosaur getting injured. Because you, you, you need to, to bring those things to life as practically as you can and as strongly. And, you know, if you were to turn down the sound, those dinosaurs are ridiculous. It's the sound that makes it work. It makes it seem real, or makes it gives us a semblance of reality. One little trivia thing about that film is Doug McClure, who played Tyler Bowen, turned down the part. And they got better funding for it after hiring Stuart Whitman, who was on the the Western TV show Cimarron Strip. And you know Doug McClure was known for playing Trampas on The Virginian, another Western. And when they got better funding, they went back to McClure and offered him better money, and he ended up taking it after all. Originally, that was going to be a Stuart Whitman film. And that was significant because in the next two movies, he was he was in them, either as the lead or the second lead. So I thought that was interesting. The other thing that was funny when I was reading up on this is the German captain, His I guess he was a British guy. They had to dub his dialogue. I didn't notice it until after I watched the film and looked it up, and I said, oh, that dialogue was dubbed. That was a good job. I, I didn't see any uh, lip-sync issues. Hmm.
3: Yeah, apparently McInerney played the character very campy, very oh. over-the-top, stereotypical, evil German, and as you said, they wanted a little more nuance in the characters. There's there's sort of some interesting interplay. It's not all black and white. You have these, yeah. these mortal wartime enemies who have to join forces, and they got Anton Differing to dub him, and it was a good job. It's not out of sync or anything. It's a pretty good dubbing job.
0: Yeah, it certainly didn't occur to me if there was anything going on with that. I just recently saw those films, so my perspective is definitely fresh on those. I liked The Land That Time Forgot pretty well, I think, in large part because by contrast, I had just watched At the Earth's Core.
1: It was the scientific marvel of the century. A mighty juggernaut to blast through the solid rock of the Earth's mantle 4,000 miles into the heart of our planet. We've been on top of the Earth long enough. It's about time we found out what's underneath. Grand-scale adventure from the world's favorite writer of fascinating fiction, Edgar Rice Burroughs, At the Earth's Core. The astounding discovery of a strange, forbidding land. A primeval, nightmare world whose shadows hid the nameless terrors that were yet to come. (laughs) Starring Doug McClure, Peter Cushing, Caroline Monroe. Take the most terrifying journey of your life. Edgar Rice Burroughs at the Earth's Core.
0: I got to be honest, in terms of the the storyline and, heck, maybe even the poster art, I I would have been more drawn to for the subject matter, but started watching it, and I'm sitting there going, okay, it says Amicus, but was it really Sid and Marty Croft? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like just any minute between the silly looking menacing monsters and the kind of second-rate career screen projection effects that they had to make them look bigger in, in the background. I just, okay, any any minute now, HR Puff and stuff's gonna burst out of the jungle, you know, or Jack wild with his flute, something.
3: Yeah, it uh, it's interesting because, you know, it. they sort of went the opposite. Like I said, they really tried to have fidelity. And part of that was, you know, Michael Moorcock and, and James Cawthorn scripted The Land That Time Forgotten. They really tried to play it straight and and delve into the whole evolutionary aspect. And they added an aspect that the island is alive and the island is, you know, they built on that and the people. And then it just sort of falls off a cliff with the second movie. The The production values are just so... You know, so cheesy, and you know I have a friend who's a little older who came of age in the seventies was a teenager, and his theory was you were supposed to go to see this at a midnight movie when you were stoned out of your mind, <laughs> and, and that was what made it entertaining that if you saw it and you weren't drunk or stoned, that it uh you know you lose the experience so and having having tried neither of those, I can't speak to that, but that was one theory because yeah, it's just loopy that they don't have dinosaurs, they have men in the kaiju suits or whatever, just sort of the big Two guys and bipedal guys bumping against each other and trying to fight in giant rubber suits. And they had the the one dinosaur, fly, fire breathing dinosaur, that's like, looks like he's on a grip cart or something that just kind of gets wheeled around. <laughs> so. these,
2: these movies were considered Saturday movies, movies for kids when they had the Saturday off and they weren't going to school or summer movies. But, you know, these were the, the sort of the modern version of Saturday matinee films. So they were aimed at essentially a younger audience. So, the, you know, and the younger audience is more tolerant. If you got to see some monsters or dinosaurs, you know, no matter how cheesy you were at least somewhat entertained by that because you were into dinosaurs. What I look at is to me, the remarkable thing is the first monster movie I saw in the theater is 1961 Gorgo. And these were the uh, 12 or so years later and it almost looks like the technology had gone backwards a little, but it was close to the same technology. You jump ahead only 10 years into like 1980 or so, and you're seeing these kinds of movies done the Spielberg way and the Lucas way, and real money being poured in, real effects and real acting, to at least to some degree. Uh, so there, there was a giant leap. If those movies had been made a decade later, they would have been quite different. Yeah. In fact, the Amicus people wanted after Land of time forgot they wanted to jump into a john carter film but they couldn't get the rights they couldn't afford them the rights were available but they were not affordable hmm. so i don't know what kind of john carter movie we would have gotten then but it would have been interesting to at least had that opportunity to see one
0: yeah i uh, as i was watching at the earth's core i thought to myself okay you know if i had seen this as a kid i might have eaten it up and so i might have some nostalgia for it now But that not being the case, it really, I didn't have a lot of patience with it. And then watching after that land that time forgot, I thought, okay, well, this is considerably better. I mean, it's not Ray Harryhausen. It's certainly not Jurassic Park, but it's definitely an improvement over the one I just watched.
3: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, we'll mention the lack of gore. They're just pumping bullets and shooting these dinosaurs, shelling them. And there's, there's no blood. The rubber monster just kind of flops over. You know, you can tell it was a child-friendly audience. It was done for that.
0: Yeah. Well, and then they do the sequel. And, and this strikes me as a little odd. Did it just not occur to them to do the sequel until later on? I mean, that that waits until 1977. Well, at the Earth's core was 76. So that's two years after Land That Time Forgot. And then the year following that, 77, that's when you get the people that time forgot.
1: They have found what they came for. That incredible lost world shut off by a towering wall of ice from which had come strange tales of wonder. Edgar Rice Burroughs, master of astounding adventure, takes us back to the fantastic island of Caprona, where time has stood still for millions of years. Where men and beasts fight a fierce battle for survival in a land of savage mystery.
0: And again, it's uh, similar in terms of the, the effects technology and the dinosaurs and everything. And it's got another blended cast.
2: I'm going to take a guess at that one. Do you have actual knowledge, Tracy?
3: No, I don't. Go ahead. What's All what's right, your I'm going to take
2: a wild guess. You know, Doug McClure was the star in, and The Time Forgot, did well for that company. It was pretty high on the British top films of that year. Not so hot in America, but still decently. And the problem is, if you did the sequel, Doug McClure was not going to be the lead. He was going to be the guy who gets rescued in the second film because that's what happened in the second book. So I think what they were thinking is, we've got to keep our lead. We've got to keep Doug McClure front and center. So let's do a different Burroughs movie. We'll still have the Burroughs name, and he'll be the hero. And that's what happened at the Earth's core. He remained the, the lead. And then when they got around to sequeling the time forgot with people the time forgot it was okay he's been good for two films we, we need another film he can come in in the middle of the film as the guy rescued from Caprona and so it was a way of using him in all three films to the maximum they could given the source material yeah and speaking of
0: which now were the were the books tied together with that common character?
3: Well, it was a trilogy. So they had, you know, when I'm watching it, Bradley, who's the captain, I believe he was the first mate in the book. He has one of the trilogy adventures. So party gets split up and chased away by the dinosaurs. And you have these different characters who have adventures. So as Will said, that's kind of a problem when you've cast Doug McClure and he's your leading man and your go-to guy. And, oh, well, you know, and the captain was played. I forget the actor, but it wasn't a leading man (laughs) playing the captain. You can't really go ahead and and take this uh, character actor and and make a movie out of him. So they had to sort of rejigger it and reconfigure it. So that's probably what happened is um, just a little bit of reconfiguration there. And how do we keep Doug front and center? Because we've got a contract with Doug and, and Doug has a name that puts butts in the seat.
0: Now, you said it was the books. There were a trilogy. What was the third one?
3: Well, it was the land that time forgot, the people that time forgot, and out of time's abyss. Okay. So the movie, The People That Time Forgot, is sort of a mashup of the last two, no- I guess you'd actually call them novellas. So they were all combined in one thick novel. So it's sort of a mashup where you have the character, his 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 childhood friends comes, takes an airplane into Caprona to rescue him. I believe that was the second book. But this lost civilization is sort of drawn from the third book. But in the third book, they had bat wings. They were a flying race that would kidnap the human women to procreate. And that idea alone of these these monstrous Batman procreating with human women is probably a little too racy for the times, especially for a children's movie. And probably that hanging guys from wires and so forth would have blown their budget. They couldn't do that. So they created this sort of a samurai civilization, this sort of the evil overlords.
0: Oh, that was in the book? Because I saw that in People the Time Forgot movie. I'm thinking, Okay, I know the budget on these things wasn't all they might wish for, but did they have to raid a Kurosawa production surplus or something uh, <laughs> for their? There costumes? was
3: an evil superior race, and the implication was that's what humans evolve into. We follow the humans from the ape men to the the hatchet men they call them, the spear men, the bow and arrow men, the Galu, which are similar to Cro Magnon, and then you had this. Bizarre monstrous race that preyed on the Galu, with the implication being that's what the Galu evolved into. But yeah, they didn't have the whole samurai. And I don't know if you noticed in the people at Time I Forgot, those tapestries had Frazetta paintings. They really tried when you get into the Naga, and that's again, that's a name that's totally made up for the movie. In the books, they were called the Wirus, sort of Burroughs, I guess, was playing on weirdos. They were mm-hmm. the Wiru race. But the Nagas, if you see the way the throne room is staged, even to Sabala when he's sitting on the throne, it's very much composed like Frazetta paintings.
0: I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, now, although the title and indeed the the premise of the podcast is theatrical movies, you know, we're talking big screen and everything. I just feel like I have to touch on the fact that in 2009, there were two adaptations for direct to video. And one was another adaptation of The Land That Time Forgot. Now, I've not seen either of these, but Tracy, I'm guessing you have.
3: Oh, yeah. I've seen them a few times. Um, They're decent for the budget. The Land That Time Forgot posits that Caprona is in the Bermuda Triangle. And sort of an interesting take that you have. And I, you know, this is just me. They have a pleasure yacht or something that gets lost in the Bermuda Triangle. Why not a boat full of Sports Illustrated models get lost in the Bermuda Triangle? (laughs) Just just go for broke if you're going to leave Burroughs behind. But they have a pleasure yacht. And what's interesting is that the German U-boat has been lost in the Bermuda Triangle. So you do have the German villains on the island. But that's sort of their thing is that there's a time warp or something. Hmm. And they have the dinosaurs. The CGI dinosaurs were on about the same budget as the rubber puppet dinosaurs. So <laughs> there's not a lot to recommend the CGI, but the acting is okay and sort of the sense of the drama and everything for a low-budget film, if that's your bag. A uh, Princess of Mars was interesting because it actually seems to hew to the novel a little better than the John Carter movie. And they had Tracy Lords as the Princess of Mars, I guess going with the biggest name they could get. Antonio Sabato Jr. played John Carter, And it was in modern day. He was over in Iraq, and he's got an enemy who is sort of matching wits with him. He's a sniper, I think, and the enemy Iraqi or, you know, Afghani or whatever, wherever he was in the Middle East. They both get transported, and this guy becomes sort of a warlord on Mars while he's going through the adventures with the Tharks. Budget wise, they couldn't do Tharks, they couldn't do thoats, so that's sort of a downside. That uh, you had the big hulking two armed green men, but otherwise, it sort of hues to Burroughs' plotline, and it, you know, I, I I thought it was interesting.
0: Hmm. Uh, Will, have you seen either of those?
3: I saw a
2: big hunk of Princess of Mars on video, and you know, it was okay for a while, but it just didn't hold my interest. my My feeling about movies like that is, I appreciate faithfulness but it's not mandatory because if faithfulness gets in the way of a good movie, then let's throw faithfulness out. And I thought that this was direct to video film. It had a certain reality. I I just didn't see, I just didn't get caught up in the story the way I would have wanted to.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, and then Tracy, you referred to it there and that's uh, next on the list. And that is the 2012 production of John Carter. Now that had, been in what's commonly referred to as development hell, I guess, for a few decades in one form or another. I remember at one point I was interviewing for a job at Disney. I don't remember what the job was I was interviewing for. I don't even remember what department, but whatever. There was a copy of the script or of a script for Princess of Mars in the office of the guy i was interviewing with and uh, so i just i remember that and thinking oh good i hope that means it's going to get made soon well not so soon because this we're talking about back in the i don't know 90s or something at this point but did finally land and get produced by disney mars so you name it
1: and think that you know it the red planet no air no life but you do not know mars for its true name is Barsoom, and it is not airless, nor is it dead, but it is dying.
0: I haven't run across anyone who doesn't like it, who doesn't think that it was a good movie. I I liked the three D of it as well, but it just didn't make enough of a splash.
3: Yeah, I'm curious. Before we delve into it, I'm, I'm curious, Will, because you had the you know that long career as as a. Um roving reporter for Starlock. Did you ever run into any scuttlebutt about this? Was this on Starlock's radar at any point?
2: Um, Starlog was pretty much kaput by that time. The, the magazine folded as a magazine in and It was on an internet presence for a couple more years. And I don't remember anything that you probably don't know, which is the title was a problem. There was a change of regime that's always doomy in terms of prospects of a film. It cost a lot. I loved the movie, by the way. When I saw it in the theaters, I liked it a lot. I'd been enough, enough distance between the last time I read Princess of Mars that I wasn't looking at it from the faithfulness standpoint. But I think the thing that people keep talking about, which is unfortunate, and it goes to a larger issue with terms of Barrow's popularity, is that Star Wars got there with similar kinds of energy, shall we say, as well as landscapes and creatures as did, you know, the Avatar film, the first one, which I think was out around that time. I don't remember the exact year. And people saw it as derivative, where it was not. It was seminal. And it really hurts a film to be seen as derivative, no matter how lavishly mounted it is, how much it costs. Because people said, well, I've seen that. And people were already enamored of the Star Wars universe. It was a phenomenon long before the John Carter movie, so that had there been a John Carter movie before Star Wars or at the same time Star Wars was around, it might have been a competing cinematic universe. I remember Jim Solos, president of Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated telling me over lunch a year or two ago that Edgar Rice Burroughs novels sold really, really well in paperback until the advent of Star Wars. And and specifically, I, I imagine not only Star Wars, but Star Wars novelizations and spin-off movies. And it kind of took the audience away because the, the, the stuff was written in a more modern voice, and it was also in films and TV specials and comic books. At the same time, it's funny, I think it was Elmore Leonard wrote an introduction to some book and said, you know, the Western was really strong in paperbacks and hardcovers until the advent of star wars which was a space western and the younger audience went in the direction of the space western story and not the historical western story so basically what i'm saying is that regrettably it took too long to make a john carter film and star wars essentially stole the gestalt and ran off with it
0: Hmm. well that's that's too bad and a little seems a little odd because i remember in the 80s of course marvel did a star wars comic series and around that time they were also did a really nice john carter series yeah. And I would have thought that that might have built up the audience, you know, enough for them to explore it. But, of course, you know, you are talking a huge commitment and budget. And I wondered if in the case of the John Carter movie, if it was the Rocketeer all over again, where the studio just didn't promote it enough.
2: Yeah, that's part of it. The other thing is that, as I mentioned, Edgar uh, Rice Burroughs novels were all over the newsstands and the chain bookstores up until around, uh, let's say, 1990s. And so a generation of young readers who might have found the Mars books at their local bookstore or, or newsstand rack didn't encounter them because uh, major publishers looked at the old pulp stuff, whether it's Doc Savage or John Carter or Tarzan or Westerns, as that's old stuff and it won't sell on the level we want. We want bestsellers and only bestsellers. And we want fat books and not skinny books and the John Carter skinny book. So the movie came out at a time when the youngest audience might have encountered John Carter novels, really didn't know who he was.
3: Hmm.
0: Wow. Is there any, and this be an open question uh, to both of you, are you aware of any, anything in development, Uh, not just John Carter, but I mean, Edgar Rice Burroughs in general, I know there's been some talk of a new Tarzan project, but just Edgar Rice Burroughs in general, anything uh, on the horizon that is worth uh, looking forward to?
3: Well, Sony has the rights to live-action Tarzan, and as far as I know, you do not have a creative team in place, so they just have the option. And, of course, we've been under the actors, first the writer strike, and then the actor's strike. Actors are still on strike, so that really slowed development. There is a, a European, uh, an, a, an English animation group uh, headed by Andy Briggs, who did some you know, good adult Tarzan novels. They have rights to the animated Tarzan. I think they've been trying to get something going for about three years now. And there is, I don't know if it's still out. They released it last year, I think, maybe a little over a year ago. They released some sample footage. So I don't know where that stands, but, you know, they're trying. Haven't heard anything, you know, in terms of John Carter. I know the company says they have this and that and the other under agreement or option or whatever, but I I don't think there's really any forward movement on anything else. Nothing really to, as you say, to sort of spark interest or to strike the fans fancy. We're in, in a bit of a lull here.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, we just keep hoping. So well, what about you guys? First of all, uh, Will, do you have any any uh, new interesting books in the works? I mean, is John Carter always- going to go to Pellucidar or anything?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I would love to do a third Tarzan on Mars, but Tarzan hates Mars, and coming up with a plausible reason for him to go back eludes me. So I pitched the Tarzan idea to take him someplace else. And all I, all I want to say about it, since I haven't gotten feedback except you know early positive, I, we like the idea. Um, Albuquerque? It, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's Tarzan, Plateau of Dread. Is the working title. And I like taking Tarzan out of his African jungle, put him out of his element and challenge him with new, new, in new ways, in new environments. And that will be one, you know, something like that.
0: Hmm. Okay. That sounds like fun. And uh, Tracy, what's uh, on your schedule? Upcoming appearances, special events?
3: Just kind of taking a break after the whole Palm Springs hoopla. That took us about 18 months from. Start to to finish. Uh, I still research and write, and you know have enough material for numerous nonfiction books on the Burroughs films and and so forth. You know, it's interesting that you know I, I grew up as a this hardcore reader of the novels, and that was always my interest was the literary Tarzan. And I remember when I moved to L.A., I saw a big ad for the Hollywood Collector Show, which is this big autograph signing show that used to have out at the Beverly Garland. Oh yeah. And Gordon Scott and Woody Strode were appearing. And I had seen the Tarzan movies here and there. And I just thought, okay, I'll I'll go out and see them. And I went out and I met them and just talked to them about their lives and their careers. And it was so inspiring talking to both of these men, you know, the stories they had. And it just kind of clicked with me. I mean, I I, this sort of something I knew, I guess you can say, academically, but it didn't really resonate in my heart because my heart is literary that okay, the world is cinematic, you know, the, the, these guys, these stories that the world wants. And that's where I sort of shifted my focus to the films because we had that wonderful book by Gabe Besso Tarzan of the movies. And then Dave Fury did a book right of, probably around the time I met Woody and Gordon. Kings uh, of the Jungle. Kings of the Jungle. Yes. And both of those were, were highly sourced by me. But it occurred to me that there's so many stories from these actors that haven't been told. And there was really no one sort of covering that beat, as it were. Will does excellent work with the literary Tarzan, and there are other writers in that field doing a great job with it. But we just didn't have someone sort of boots on the ground delving into the film history and stuff. And so that's when it sort of shifted focus. And Danton Burroughs and I put a proposal for the book that became Tarzan on film in front of Disney back in 1997 and Disney didn't bite they only wanted to promote Disney's Taurus. they didn't want to delve into the the so and my perspective which was sort of different from Gabe and Dave's was i was going to look at the men who played tours and sort of delve into their biographies you know it was going to be a, a book of biographies and so that didn't come about. It just sort of, I, you know, never fully went fallow. I just kept researching and digging and digging. And then when I did Tarzan the Centennial Celebration, I may have told you this, my follow-up was going to be to do the same treatment with John Carter and everything else. Right. Do a book on all of the John Carter land that time forgot, everything, a big coffee table book. And Titan said the John Carter film just didn't do too well. How about another great book? book on Tarzan of the movies, you know, that was what uh, Nick Landau, the head of Titan, he really liked, again, the gay best, but he felt like it was time for a new one, and so he was the one that pitched the films, and I was able to sort of hit the ground running because I'd done so much research, so yeah, I leave the literary aspect to Will and and the other guys who really have had a career of it, and I stick more to the, the film history and the history of Burroughs and his family, there's always new archives going online all the time, so there's always something new to find out.
0: Yeah. Well, very good. So now, since I've had you both on before, and I've asked you my standard question of my guests, which is describing your most memorable going experience, and you've done that, uh, I've got another question that I'd like to throw at you, and that is, if you could rent out a movie palace for one evening and invite you know a few hundred of your closest friends, what movie would you show them? And it doesn't have to be you know tied to today's topic. Who wants to go first?
2: I'll go first. I like the idea of showing something to people they haven't seen or haven't heard of. And there was a movie done in 59 called Black Orpheus, filmed in Brazil, that was a love story, but it was also kind of a supernatural story. It was a retelling of Eurydice and what's, I'm forgetting his name, but you know, the Greek myth of the hero who goes to the underground or the girl, the girl who dies and the hero has to go to the underground to rescue her. I'm very impressed by that movie because it's the kind of movie they don't do anymore. It's realistic, but it has elements of the supernatural. It's a very good love story. And, and, I, and I remember reading the the two stars, Breno Mello and the other the woman, Marpasadon. They happen to die either on the same day or a day apart many years after they made that movie. I thought that's kind of interesting. It, it's a color film. It's not a black and white. But I thought that's a movie that's getting forgotten that might appeal to a lot of people if it only was revived or remade.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I know the title. I have not seen it, so I should put it on my list. So, Tracy, how about you?
3: Well, you know, my taste in movies outside of the genre tends to run to sort of offbeat stuff like Donnie Darko, Mulholland Drive. So, and those are films that I think everyone who views them can take a little something different away because there's a lot that's unspoken. Everyone seems to have a different opinion of those films. And I sort of have my own theory of what David Lynch was saying that dovetails perfectly with my experience in Hollywood of being a young guy coming out here right out of college and trying to make it in Hollywood. So I probably wouldn't do those. I think what I would do would be to show a double bill of perhaps either Tarzan, the ape man and Tarzan and his mate with Johnny Weissmuller or the two Gordon Scott films, Tarzan's Greatest Adventure and Tarzan the Magnificent. But accompany that with a lot of print material and sort of do a talk before the film and tell people why these films are relevant and why they're important and why we should remember them and what contribution they made to our cultural history. So in other words, I wouldn't just show the film in a vacuum. I would show them and say, this is why these films are significant and should be remembered.
0: Sure. Yeah. That sounds like a good idea. All right, then. Well, once again, guys, thank you for joining me in this discussion. I've enjoyed it and hopefully it's been informative and people uh, will be able to seek out some of these films if they haven't watched them already, form their own opinions and share them and discuss them online Oh, and you can visit the featured guest page on the Movie Nights and Matinees website, and you'll see pictures of Tracy and Will there. You click on those, and it'll take you to their respective websites, and you can learn more about them and what they're doing and, and so forth. So, gentlemen, until next time, thank you for joining me again on Movie Nights and Matinees.
3: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure, Bill.
0: As always, if you're interested in seeing the films we've been talking about, swing over to the Screening Room page of the Movie Nights and Matinees website, where you'll find images linked to Amazon, where you can order them. Except the Lost Films, of course. If you run across any of those, be sure to let us know. If you haven't already done so, please click on the Follow or Subscribe button wherever you listen, and submit a rating and review where possible. You can also offer up reviews, comments, recipes, whatever, on the Movie Nights and Matinees Facebook page. Also, And I haven't really tended to think to ask this, but if you're enjoying the podcast, share it around. Spread the word. Don't keep all the good stuff to yourself. Be sure to join me for episode 21 in a couple of weeks when I'll... mm, But that would be telling.